Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. Amen. Let's rise to worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. Lift up your hearts. Our Heavenly Father, you are our great God, our high King, our Maker, and our Redeemer. We worship and praise you for your great love toward us, and we thank you that you are not a God far off, but rather in your Son you have become for us Emmanuel, God with us. And so we both confess and we boast that you are our strength. Please bless us now as we come before you to worship you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. The sermon text is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 8 through 12. These are the words of God. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've not been silent, but you have spoken. And so, Father, we ask that your word would now be living and active and sharp and that your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us and that you would apply it to our lives. Father, lift us up by that same spirit so that we might have a greater vision of what a family is, what a home is, and what it's for. Father, we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this week and next week, we will be looking at what the Bible says the family is for. What is the family for is the question that we want to ask, and we'll be looking at it uh, this week and next in order to better understand why God calls us to different tasks uh, that are nevertheless aimed at the same goal. We've been blessed with uh, teaching for many years in this community on family and marriage and parenting and so forth, and, um, and this is a a uh, time of the year where perhaps many of us are also doing a little bit of inventory where uh, college students are coming back into town, uh, you're buying school supplies, getting ready to uh, jump back into the school year, homeschooling or Logos. Um, and, um, and so it's a, a good moment for us to say, okay, as a family, as a household, uh, what are we doing again? Uh, what is it that we're aiming at? What is our goal? What is the family for? Um, This is a a somewhat challenging 
text, and there are a number of things in 1 Corinthians 11 uh, that might and could rightly uh, grab our attention, and we're not going to look at all of them, but I want to work through these few verses that I've just read, reference a few of the others um, in its context, and then use that as a springboard to beginning to ask the question, what is a family for? Also, as we work through this, I would expect that there will be sort of the, but what about kind of questions, but what about this aspect? And, and that's why we're going to come back to this again, part two, and you know, obviously in two sermons, we're not gonna cover it all, um, but I also hope that this is a sort of setup kind of message, the kind of message where you're ready for part two. So let's look at the text together uh, for a moment. In, in a somewhat challenging passage, Paul reminds the Corinthians that the creation details are important and significant not arbitrary or ambivalent. He reminds them that the first woman was created from man, and this is because woman was created for man. So you see this in verses eight and nine. For the man is not of or from the woman, but the woman is from the man. He's talking about Adam and Eve there. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. So he's drawing from these details and saying, that wasn't an accident, that wasn't random, that wasn't accidental, it was intentional and on purpose. Paul reasons from the order of creation to a telos or a purpose for creation. God did it this way because this is what we are for. God made us this way because this is what we're for. Paul says this is why a woman ought to have power or authority on her head, verse 10, especially in the context of worship and public prayer. So we see this, if, we, if you jump back a few verses in verses four and five, we can see that the context of these comments, the context of this teaching is uh, Paul is giving instructions for public prayer and worship, back in four and five. Every man praying or prophesying with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. Uh, Paul's giving instructions for prayer and uh, public worship. And so it's in that context in particular um, that Paul says um, this order is significant. He's referring back to the creation order and saying this is especially significant when we come to worship. It's so significant that in some way it even reaches up to the angels, verse 10, because of the angels. I incidentally think that we probably should just start using that phrase more often, just because of the angels, you know? Maybe when your wife's grabbing you something from the grocery store, honey, it's because of the angels. Um, and, and I say that in jest, and at the same time as we work through this more, I think there's more to it. it it's, it's not just a joke. There's, there's more to it than we might think. Now, this is um, so significant, Paul says. It's cosmic. At the same time, none of this that he's already said about the order of creation should be taken to mean that man is independent of woman, as, the, as though only she needs the man, that he is independent and he doesn't need her. No, Paul hastens to add, both need each other. Verse 11, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman. Neither is the woman without the man in the Lord. 
In fact, don't take the from or the of language in a sloppy way, Paul insists, because every man after Adam literally came from a woman, right? So the first woman came from the first man, but after that, every man came from a woman. And besides all that, all things are from God. Verse 12. I'm riffing a bit off of uh, C.R. Wiley's new book, The Household and the War for the Cosmos, which I highly recommend to you. And, and, and riffing off that, the Bible says that getting sex and marriage and the family right has cosmic significance. It has cosmic significance. And, and this is implied at the beginning of the chapter of 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul writes, but I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So right at the beginning of that, of this whole chapter, as he, as he sets out this order, what men and women are for and how they relate to one another, Paul insists that the order or the structure of being made male and female in this world is constantly referring to Christ and God. It's a chain. There's a connection. It's constantly referring up to heaven. It's, it's referring to spiritual realities, cosmic realities, heavenly realities. To mess with male and female is already to attempt to mess with God and his Christ. We've been reminded of this many times when considering the fact that man, both male and female, is made in the image of God. Man is made in the image of God. And, and so since man in his rebellion, when, when we are at odds with God, when we hate God, when we're at war with God, since we can't actually strike at God himself because God is infinite and visible and so forth, um, what we do is the next best thing and we strike at his image. This is what man does. We sort of burn the image in effigy like some kind of blasphemous voodoo doll. We strike at people. We disfigure people. We hate people. We murder people. We abuse people, ultimately, because we can't get at the image that they bear. But because we hate the one whose image they bear, we strike at the image. We seek to harm the image. But here, Paul presses the point even further. The blasphemy is not merely in the disfiguring and dismembering of image bearers themselves, though it is certainly that. It is also in the attempted deconstruction of the order of the sexes. In marriage, in worship, in the church, and in the public square. To defy the order to say these you know, men and women are interchangeable parts. They do the same things, they're for the same things, and who are you to say otherwise? To defy the order is to defy Christ and God. But it isn't only that. Paul says that this order is even significant in some way because of the angels because of the angels. Without pretending to understand fully what Paul had in mind with that phrase, we should understand that Paul is making a cosmic claim. 
He is arguing that the order of man and woman and Christ and God is not an extraneous matter. This is, this is not a matter of a lifestyle choice. These are not various options. No, he's arguing that the order of man and woman, Christ and God, that these things reach up and out into the very fabric of the universe. That you are either submitting to the way God created the whole universe or else you are in some way fighting it. You're in some way defying the way the whole universe was constructed. Now, we're all moderns and we have been trained to think that the universe is made up of molecules and atoms and that these are the fabric of the universe but that's what the universe is made of but that doesn't exhaust what the universe is or all of the reality that's going on cosmically and so a more biblical understanding recognizes that God's word is what ultimately holds all things together Hebrews 1.3 says, God's word, he created the universe by his word and he upholds it all by his word. Christ is the one, Colossians says, in, in whom all things cohere, all things hold together by the power of Christ and by the power of his word. But the Bible actually tells us more. The Bible also says that the angels are the messengers of God who carry out his word. Psalm 103, verse 20. So it is God's word that speaks and creates and upholds and his will is being carried out, but the Bible also teaches that that word is being fulfilled by angels. Angels are intimately involved in the fabric of this world, in carrying out the word of God and upholding all creation, the cosmos. The angels, we're told, are messengers of fire, fulfilling his word, sparks of flame, intimately involved in all of creation, carrying out his will. Psalm 104, verse 4. This is also related to why the Bible uh, frequently associates angels with the stars. I put a number of references there for you to go look at later, but this is something that the Bible is very comfortable with, that even the angels are in some way associated with the stars, the heavenly hosts. And, and in this sense, these star angels are seen as having something to say or do with the births and lives and callings of people. So at the beginning of Job, as Job's been struck down, Everything's been taken from him, and he unleashes perhaps one of the most horrific curses in all the Bible. He curses the stars. He curses the angels that were there, the stars that were in the heaven at his conception and birth, insinuating that they had something to do with the story of his life that they have been involved in the story of his life, bringing him to this point where now everything's been torn away from him. Or the most famous example of this sort of thing is the star that leads the wise men to the, to the house where Jesus is. This star has something to say about who's this, who this child is and what he's going to be and do. 
Our lives are intertwined with the angels. Even Psalm 8 is reveling in this, that man is made a little lower than the angels, but crowned with glory and honor. Our lives are not, it's not just us, it's not just us and God, but it's the whole cosmos is connected. And the Bible describes the angels as having a great deal to do with how we are all connected. So that what we're doing then, what you're doing in your laundry room, what you're doing when you're doing the dishes, when you're going to school, is in some way connected to all of this. It's all connected because of the angels. In another place, Paul again gestures at the cosmic significance of the family when he writes this. This is, this is from Ephesians chapter 3. He says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family, literally all fatherhood, in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Just notice that real quickly one more time. Ephesians 3. He, he says that he bows his knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family, or literally all fatherhood, every family in heaven and earth is named after the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, he bows his knee to the Father so that he would grant the Ephesians, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. As with angels and stars, moderns are frequently ignorant of the biblical and cosmic meaning of naming. Right? I mean, in, in modern day, when we name things, it's, you know, we name things because we liked the name. <laughs> why, why did you? Well, I just liked it. I liked the way it sounded. Now, you know, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. And, and sometimes, of course, there's more to it. It's, it, was, it was my grandpa's name or my grandma's name or this famous person. And I, I wanted to honor that memory. And those are good reasons, too. But, but the Bible has actually more to say about naming. In the Bible, naming is even more significant. Going back to the original creation week, when God spoke and called the universe into being, he did so by calling it by name. Let there be light. And he saw the light, and he called the light day. And he separated the light from the darkness, and he named the darkness night. And he separates the the, the, the dry ground and the waters, and he names them earth and seas, and he names the expanse, the firmament or heaven. So that you see that when God names, he's giving a purpose. He's giving a meaning. He's describing what these things are for. And then, of course, when he begins to teach Adam what it means to be made in his image, he teaches Adam to imitate that creativity in the task of naming the animals. Uh, Adam wasn't just calling random animals, you know, you're Fred and you're Joe and Bob. 
right? No, no, that's not what he was doing. And we know he wasn't doing that because as he finishes naming the animals, it, it says, and no helper was found for him who was well suited to him. And so, so what Adam was doing in naming the animals was also describing what they were and what they were for. This is the sort of the original taxonomy. It was a, it was a, it was a, 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 a zoological lesson. He was working through the animal kingdom and, and coming to understand what these animals did and what they were like and what they were for. And so he comes to the end of it and there was no helper suitable found for him. It, it, it's actually striking. It, it doesn't stop there because as soon as um, that happens, of course, God uh, creates a helper suited to Adam he takes the rib out of Adam, and from that rib, he forms the woman, and he brings her to the man, and, and this is in Genesis 2, 23, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. He, he named her, right? He names her. Because she was taken out of man, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. So he names his wife and then describes what that means. Because she has this name, uh, she will be joined to her husband and they will become one flesh. There's actually a, another subtle um, naming going on in that verse that we, we miss in, in our English translations, but in, the, in Genesis 1 and 2, um, all the way up to this point, the same word has been used for Adam every single time, and the word in Hebrew is Adam, Adam. You know Hebrew. There you go. See? Um, it's Adam, man, every, every time, um, all the way up to verse 23, the, the same word. And then it says, when Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, and the word there in Hebrew is isha. Isha is the word for woman, because she was taken out of, and you would expect that word to be Adam, and it's not. It's a new word. It's the word Ish, which means that Adam just gave himself a new name. He named himself after his wife. Um, and then he goes right into what he's for. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. He's just gotten a new name. He's just renamed himself. And now he has a job. Now he has a vocation. Now he knows a little bit more what he's for. And it's really striking as he, as he comes into communion and fellowship with his wife. He's, he's saying that she has changed him. She's made him a new man. He's so new, he needs a new name to go with that newness. With this new state that he finds himself in. So naming in the Bible goes closely together with calling. Naming goes together with who you are and what you're for. And so we see this frequently in the Bible where God, God calls people like Abram and then gives them a new name, Abraham, underlining what he's for, what his mission is. Or the angel tells Zechariah that, he's, Zechariah that he's going to have a son and his name will be John and he has a job. Or the angel coming to Joseph and Mary, his name will be Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now we're not God, but we're made in God's image. And so our words are still powerful like God's words. 
This is why the Bible is full of warnings about the tongue. Because you're made in the image of God, your words are able to give life and blessing and edification and build up and give new life. And your words are able to do great harm and damage. They can destroy life. And so James warns us about the tongue. But so all fatherhood finds its meaning and purpose in the eternal father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of our families ultimately find their names in the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, this is how God grants strength in the inner man. Do you want to be a strong man? Do you want to be a strong woman, a strong son, a strong daughter, a strong father or mother, a strong grandfather, a strong grandmother? Do you want to have a strong family? Paul says that you need to know who you are in the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing the Father through his only Son is an invitation to put down roots, to know who you are, to know who your people are, to know what your name is, to know what you and your family are for, to build a strong family because you know the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've bowed your knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom, from whom, every family in heaven and earth is named. Say, okay, but, but what are families for? If we have that name, if the triune God's name is upon us, on our families, on our homes, what does that mean that we are for? A great deal of our confusion is related to the fact that we, we just simply don't understand what family and marriage and home is for. The word economics is from two Greek words, home and law. So, so literally, an economy is the law of the house or we might say the order of the home. So an economy is literally the way a household is organized. And a household economy includes what is being produced, what supplies are needed in order to carry out that production, and then who performs what tasks. This is how businesses work. And therefore, there must be a clear chain of command, an organization. We, we, don't, you know, we don't generally bat an eye at the idea of a boss having authority and giving instructions and pointed feedback to employees. Right? Somebody comes to you and says, I can't believe it. My boss is just bossing me around. Right? Like, why, you know, are you, do you know what a job is? Right? You took the job, and his job is to tell you what to do. And then he's going to give you feedback on how you did it. I can't believe it. It's so oppressive. Tyrannical. Now, of course, there can be bad bosses, right? There can be tyrannical bosses. There can be unjust bosses, of course. But nobody generally bats an eye at the idea of authority and submission when it comes to business. 
Everybody knows there's authority and submission. There's an order. There's a chain of command when it comes to business. And this is frequently because we have a great deal of reverence for money and market success. Everybody knows that if you want to succeed as a business, you can't wing it. Right? Jeff Bezos didn't get together with a bunch of guys and say, hey, let's just do something on the internet. What do you say? We'll just wing it and just make stuff, write some code, and we'll just see what happens. No, that, that's, that's not how these corporations have succeeded. That's not how these businesses have succeeded. There was a plan. There was a chain of command. There were various methods of feedback. People got fired. Right? This is how businesses, this is how economies operate. And we don't generally bat an eye at it. But if you don't think that the family economy is doing anything terribly important, then you might think that the man, being the head of his wife, seems pretty arbitrary and kind of tyrannical, like some roommate being appointed head of all the roommates, right? Why are you the boss, God says, right? Just imagine how that goes down in a roommate situation. But frequently, people think that's basically what a family is. It's sort of a traditional way of doing roommates. I, uh, many, some of you know that my family's in the process of um, building a, a new house, Lord willing, and so we've been looking at house plans. You can learn a lot about what a culture thinks a house is for by looking at the house plans, right? And so what you find is that a lot of modern houses have these gigantic bedrooms and gigantic bathrooms and these tiny little living rooms with a big wall for a TV. So basically, what do we think family is for? What is a home for? It's for sleeping in and watching TV and apparently sometimes taking long showers. <laughs> That's what a family's for. And then you're like, wait, what? You're the head of this? And if you think about it for a second, you realize like, okay, so that means basically you're in charge of the remote. I mean, like, like, that's kind of what it comes down to. I mean, like if what you do in your home is you watch movies and then you sleep and then occasionally shower, right? Why do you get to be the boss? It doesn't make any sense. If that's what a family's for, if that's what a house is for, if that's what a home is for, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if you begin to see through the word of God and through the gospel, that God has designed something far more enormous in the family. If you begin to see that the stakes are really high, that what we are participating in, in marriage and in family and in eating together and fellowshipping together and practicing hospitality, when you begin to see that the stakes are cosmic, that we're doing something that reaches all the way up into heaven, into Christ and God, then you're likely to begin to appreciate the need for clear roles. We're not just winging it. This is enormous. We're, 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 we're touching things that reach up into the fabric of the universe, to heaven itself. Yeah, yeah, you be in charge. That's fine, you be in charge. I don't want to screw this up. If this goes bad, it's your fault. Suddenly, it's, it's not an arbitrary little thing, a random thing, the stakes become really high. And you say, yeah, somebody better be in charge. 
So you might still wonder then, but businesses have services they provide or goods they produce. What are families for? The answer is they make people. That's what families are for. We make people. People are the most valuable resource in all of creation because they bear the image of the living and eternal God. C.S. Lewis says somewhere that we have never had any dealings with a mere mortal. Everyone we come in contact with is either in the process of becoming a creature that we would be tempted to worship or else to recoil from in utter horror. People are immortals. They will live forever. And, and, they are, and they have eternal destinies. Remember in Revelation, John comes across somebody and falls down and begins worshiping him. And the guy says, get up, get up. I'm just one of you. I'm just a guy. We are, we are on paths that are either leading to unspeakable glory or unspeakable horror. Heaven and hell. We have souls that will live forever. We are immortals. And for two people to become one flesh in the covenant of marriage and then create new people is to participate in something beyond reckoning. Immortal souls are coming into existence and being fashioned for eternal destinies. Google and Amazon have nothing on the family. What they're making, as glorious as it may be, as wonderful as it may be, has nothing on the family. We're making people. We're making immortals. I want you to think about this broadly, though. Not just thinking about the fact that in, you know, a man and a woman come together and she conceives and bears a child. Of course, at the center of it all, that's, that's the central way we make people. But it's not just a matter of bearing children because then you have to feed them. And then you have to clothe them. And you teach them to talk. And you teach them to walk. You, you, you teach them manners, you teach them how to read, you teach them how to write, you teach them how to sing, you teach them how to dance, you teach them a good joke and a story, you're teaching them how to be people, how to be humans made in the glorious image of God. And so the, the task of making people isn't, isn't merely bearing and conceiving biological children, though it is that, but it, it's way bigger than that. Right? When you're making a meal, what are you doing? You're making people. They have to eat. You're blessing them when you set the table. Right? You invite them to your table. When you practice hospitality, what are you doing? You're making people. Right? You're sharing the glory of God with people. And as you share that glory with them, you're drawing them closer to God. You're drawing them further up and further in to Christ and his glory. You're inviting, when you, when you invite somebody to church, you're inviting them to become people, to become what they were intended to be by their maker. We're making people. And so the stakes are really high if we get this wrong. 
But on the flip side, to submit to God's design for man and woman and family is to cut with the grain of the stars. It's to even honor the angels in some mysterious way. Right? When, when, a, when a woman says, I am a woman made in the image of God, whether she's married, whether she's born children, whether she's single, whether she's divorced, whether she's been remarried, whether she's barren, whether she's old or young, when she says, I'm a woman made in the image of God and, I, and the blood of Jesus has redeemed me and made me clean and I'm going to live like a woman to the glory of God, it, it's something that even blesses the angels. Why are you living like that? Because of the angels. Because this is the way God made the whole universe, the cosmos. Which means that you are participating in something powerful. You are participating in something that's loaded. You just think about it for a second. Why is it? Why is it that the thing that our culture hates so much is the family. Why do they hate it? Why do they hate? Why do, are they so vicious, especially when it comes to a woman embracing her calling to make a home, to be a mother, to love the fact that she's been made in a particular biological way and to rejoice in that? Why do they hate that so much? because it's so powerful. Because I think they know deep down inside that if we actually came to understand the glory that's being given to us there, it would all be over. It's such a threat to all the old systems of sin and unbelief to come to submit to the way God made the world, to submit to our sexuality, to submit to our bodies, to submit to his order is where all the glory and power is. But none of this is automatic. None of this is automatic. Our families only participate in that heavenly glory in the only way there is to our heavenly father which is through his only son. This is the only way our families participate in that glory. This is the only way our families take part in that cosmic dance. And this is really good news for every kind of family, every kind of household there is. We live in a fallen world, a world that's been cursed by sin, and every one of our families has been affected by it and infected with it. And so this good news applies to every kind of family there is. The unmarrieds, the divorced, the remarrieds, the married without kids, the married with lots of kids, the, the married with grown kids, the married with estranged kids, the ones estranged with parents and brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, aunts and uncles, grandparents, where sin has wreaked all kinds of havoc. Because the strength and the power that God is offering to us in the family is not grounded and rooted in us. But all of our families are named after the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Do you want your family, whatever it is, do you want your family blessed with that strength? Then come to the Father through his Son. Come to the Father through his Son. The Son takes away our sins, and the Son clothes us in his righteousness. If you come to the Father through the Son, your family is named after the Father, which means you, in his beloved Son, are beloved. In his Son, you are glorious. In his Son, you are mighty and strong and powerful. We make people biologically through the glorious one flesh union of husband and wife, but we make people for everlasting glory and productivity through the fullness of the gospel, by knowing the Father through Jesus his Son, and by doing everything that he calls us to in that light. And why are you doing the dishes? Why are you going to school? Why are you working so hard? Why did you start that business? Why are you painting that picture? Why are you, why are you doing these things? Because of the angels. Why? Because I'm made in the image of the living God, and I've been redeemed by the blood of his son, and I've been adopted into his family, and now my family, my house, has been taken up into that cosmic goal of making people for eternal glory. That's what we're doing. We're making people to shine like the stars. We're making people who will know the Father through the Son and be filled with his eternal spirit, who will be creative and smart and intelligent and build things and invent things and create things to the glory of God forever and ever. God, we praise you and we thank you for this great gift of being made a little lower than the angels and crowned with your glory Father, we confess to you that we have so often despised that glory, we've sinned against that glory, we've fallen short of that glory. But Father, we praise you that you sent your son Jesus to die the death we deserved for scorning your glory, and who rose again in order to give us that glory all back. Oh Father, pour out the spirit of your son upon us so that we might understand a little bit more what you are doing with us in this glorious institution of a family, that all of it is somehow taken up into what you are doing in the whole universe. When we take the Lord's Supper, we are declaring something. Paul's, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we are declaring the, de the Lord's death until he returns. As we eat this bread and as we drink this wine, we are telling all of Moscow that Jesus died. This is why we believe that when we come together to worship, we are doing something to our town. We are declaring to this town that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, and that he rose again. But if we dig into the text of 1 Corinthians, we'll see that it, gives just, it gets just a little bit more specific than that. When Jesus gave them the bread, he gave it to them with this explanation. Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says there that when we take and eat the bread, we are declaring not just that Jesus came and died, but that he came and died for us. Listen to it again. This is my body which is broken for you. Do you hear that? He does not just say this is my body which is broken. He says which was broken for you. His death is not just a general offer to the world. His death had a specific object and that object was you. So come and see this meal as God's promise to you. 
you are his and he is yours. His death atoning for your sin is yours. His rising up on the third day is yours. His ascension into heaven is yours. That promise is in this bread. You are his and he is yours. So come and see the kindness of God. Come and hear the promise of God. Come to the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. The charge is this. See that you honor and glorify God in the mystery of your family. Then simply ask God to show you the first step, just the first step. First step. Ask him for that this week and be sure that when he shows it to you, that you take it. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace and amen.